Interval Drinks is recorded remotely. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes. Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is Interval Drinks, a podcast in which Royal Shakespeare Company resident artists talk to people who have inspired them over drinks. I really recommend working at the RSE during a pandemic. <laughs> There's no audience that matches an audience of young people. I mean, I literally left drama school thinking this will never work out. I'm trying to flatter you, but I'm probably insulting you at the same time. I don't want to be less soft. I, I want to be vulnerable. I want to wander around with all my emotions terrifyingly close to the surface and, and then monetize that. This is why I'm doing this. This is what I was born to do. And this is why I was born to do it. Catching up in this week's Interval Drinks, Mahadi Masuku with actor and writer John Carney. Hello and welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company's podcast where we talk to actors who inspire us. My name is Mohadi Masuhu. I'm an actor in the current company, playing in A Winter's Tale and the Comedy of Errors. And today I have the privilege of doing something as a daughter of the Nguni people that I never believed I'd get the opportunity to do while working in a completely different culture. Today, I will sit at my elder's feet and learn from him. Sir John Carnage, the sir is coming, I know it. <laughs> who bears a striking resemblance to my uncle, is a legend of South African theatre, king of Wakanda, an accomplished playwright, actor, author, director, and just by the way he lives his life, an impactful political and social activist. He is a man whose work and character I have admired from afar and someone who I am honoured to introduce to you. Ladies and gentlemen, my Malume, Sir, Mr. Sir, John Kani. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I know how absolutely busy you are. Thank you. Thank you. And we have a conversation yeah. with my younger niece. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you're giving me like... Um, Stuff to, to have, you're making me a legend in my family. Like, he said I'm his young niece. You can't even. <laughs> I'm special. So, um, since this show is called Interval Drinks, I wanted to ask you, uh, what is your interval drink of choice? It would be actually just water. Oh, I missed the whole, uh, as a young boy growing up in Port Elizabeth in the 50s, we were so kind of jumped our youth. Sometimes people ask me, what do you miss most during the days of apartheid? It was my youth. I was never given the opportunity to be just a young kid, run around the street, do all sorts of things, try this and try that, just to be exploring the world around me. Growing up in under apartheid, you are immediately hipped with the responsibility the responsibility of what's happening around you, your family, your siblings, your community. You're being dragged this side, some another thing. We go to school, which is the Bandu education, which is de-educating us. And after school, we go to another school, which was the liberation school, which corrected what we learned. So you grow up like that and you think, okay, now that I'm an elder and you ask me, what's my favorite drink? It's water. Just water. Just water. 
and looking at the faces of the people who have just witnessed this event that's taking place in the theater, I did not call it a play. I said, we've just witnessed this event that has taken place, which we're now given a break to step out, take a breather, and allow the thoughts to begin to process it. And then I have my glass of water, and then I will sneak in very quietly to sit to wait for the second half, because things are going to happen now. Ah, See, I knew about the Bantu education where essentially um, you're being taught to be servants. That was the role of it. I didn't know about the independent schools, which are sort of in, similar to the independent schools that were started in the 1970s in, in Britain by the Caribbean and African community to properly educate Caribbean and African children. Absolutely. You know, that apartheid education was ruthless, was violent. It was enforced on us. And our parents knew that if we grew up believing that this is education, this is what it is, it is as it is, we would then become the new generation that inherited inferiority from them and has defined our role as those are part of the economic machine that empowered white minority governments of South Africa. We knew, of course, even then, that even in the church, that the religion was like, God be with those that are in power, especially the president of this country. And that particular president will be, will be mentioned by name. Even during assembly, as young kids at school, we would sing songs that lamented the freedom of Kenya and that we wish things would be as they were before so we could go to Kenya and have a wonderful time. This English language was used as an oppressing tool to us, because I speak, is it Kosa, is it Zulu, is it Sudu, is it Swana, is it Pedi, is it Tsonga, is it Venda, Chivenga, is Shangan. But my education was in English. And Shakespeare played a critical role in that education because we could study these sonnets. We could study and learn about these plays in the 50s when there's a performance at the um, market theater. In, in Port Elizabeth, it wasn't the market theater, it was a market hall where these productions from these white exclusive acting comp theater companies would perform these white people wearing white shorts and tights and big wigs and speak in a strange accent and it was English. And we sat there as young kids from school in the 50s and just looking. What we enjoyed was the trip away from the township back into town. Now, South African apartheid is the only country that politicized the word town. The word town means where white people live. Township or village is where black people live. So we knew if you say I'm going to town, you know that you're going to another country, another land, and your time there is restricted to the business of going to town. As soon as you finished it, you go back to the township where the area is black people. And at school, in the 50s, we used to study what we called royal readers, lovely little stories of the fairies, of English culture, and all that. And while history was about the kind of South African history, 
that is being introduced that defines who I am, in fact, even tells me where I come from. So what was a relief for us was the moment when my English teacher would say, okay, today we're going to do sonnet by William Shakespeare, number so-and-so. And then oh, we would wow. say, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? I didn't know what that meant. I didn't care. <laughs> it wasn't telling me what to do. It was asking me to appreciate. Love is not love, you know, that alters when alter rate and change or with a remover to remove. Those were beautiful. I saw them as love letters to certain girls or young, whatever, that Shakespeare was communicating with. Okay, so, so um, you, how old were you when you were introduced to Shakespeare? Yes, I was about uh, 9, 10, 11. Oh, wow. I, I don't know if they do that here now, because I went to school in Zimbabwe and we were introduced to Shakespeare at about that age. It's a part of um, studying the patterns of English language and getting a proper understanding of like sentence forming and things like that. And you're right. Uh, it wasn't that I absolutely understood what was being said. I just uh, was uh, learning sen sentence structure and syntax and all that sort of stuff. So it was useful for that. That's really, it's really amazing that in all this time that that hasn't changed. And it's quite useful now, I find, in like in working. Like I can break it down in a sort of academic way and then go in emotionally with confidence. Absolutely. The first thing I do when I look at this would be Shakespeare, Hollywood, whatever it comes, I have to translate it into my own language. Which one? Is it closer? So you choose Kosa as your, is, is your, yeah. My language. Your I'm language. not going to use the word indigenous because there's nothing no, indigenous there's nothing about indigenous me. about, no, there's nothing indigenous <laughs> about anyone. No, I was but going to say because. Indigenous corners and trees and roots and what, it's nothing to do with me. No, me we're not, we, we are, we are you, we are not things. Um, no, I was going to say base language because Tinas Veleswatin, Umasugu Vaseswatini and Umama used to say, Iswati is my base language, and then everything else is on top. And once, I, it, once she was angry, it was funny. We knew, how, we could gauge how angry she was because she spoke 15 languages. She would go through all of them. By the time she got to his Kosa or something, that's when we're like, ee! you have to catch her while she's still speaking English, essentially, because then she's outside of her emotional center. So you translate into his closer because is it because it's close it is in your emotional and intellectual center to think in his closer and you can access the character easier that way yes for instance in 1959 when uh, we were studying uh, my secondary school and then the teacher brought us this new uh, set book or set work which was Julius Caesar in Isitos written by William Shakespeare, translated into Isikosa by W.B. Mlele. Now, I'm going to say it in my language. William Julius Kakesar, William Shakespeare, Wakukulelo Eskosin, W.B. Mlele. That was it. Now, there's a fantastic passage where when Mark Antony discovers the body of Julius Caesar lying at the feet of the statue of Pompey, and Mark Antony bellows out and says, Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, to be meek and gentle unto these butchers. Now, beautiful. Uh -huh. Oh, beautiful. 
I'm going to say it now in my language, the way I studied Shakespeare for the first time, Aundiktolele wena gada lopisai. Ukubandi lulame ditambe kweze zikhelen. Hey, and it says, it, it's like, so it says it so much. Oh, even if you don't speak his close, you understand how he feels about the people that killed his friend. This is exactly when I realized that this writer called Shakespeare is mm. an incredible man. Because I assumed he even was part of the translation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you thought he was there with Mr. Mjelde, like going... We're there with Mr. Mjelde, you know, and the fact that thou bleeding piece of earth, imagine the drought when the dry land, is the, the, the crust is cracking and suddenly blood oozes out of the cracks, which was the life leaving the body and the life oozing out of the body. And that's what bleeding piece of earth means in Isikosa. So it was much deeper. Later, I think it was in 1960, I finally got the exact text of Julius Caesar in English. I was a little, a little disappointed by William Shakespeare. Oh. It didn't capture the power of Mzledle's translation. I, I think what's happened because of ev the evolution of language, I think what was powerful and very um, articulate in Shakespeare's time has become watered down with the evolution of the English language. Maybe. Because now when we, when we, when we um, study Shakespeare and we're doing the work, we have to use the concordance and they're like, oh, no, this is what this word means. And you're like, oh, that's not how we say it now. It feels kind of wet now <laughs> when they met, when that word was created. Because, of course, they didn't have a dictionary in Shakespeare's time. They created a dictionary of the English language. So they were making up words all the time. There's so many new words in his time. And it's, whereas, as you said, we've been around since before human beings were human beings. Our language is set. I was talking to a friend of mine about how easy it is to swear in the English language and how difficult it is to swear in any of the languages I speak because we don't swear casually. It's, it's, you have to mean it when you say something to someone. You have to, it goes to their bones. You're cutting to the marrow of their bones when you swear. And that's how deep and intense the language is. I'm so glad you bring up Shakespeare. I wanted to ask you, is that love that um, Julius Caesar sort of ignited in you, is that what inspired you to, to perform in Shakespeare or to be a part of like bringing his, his world and his place to life? Is that what drew you to him? Actually, uh, it was the storytelling. We come from generations and generations of storytellers. When my grandmother said, come, I want to tell you a story. We all knew someone has messed up. We will never be called to listen to a story. A lesson is coming, like the, in a sonnet, those two couplets. We're waiting for them, as my grandmother says, there was this old woman who lived in this house. We knew, all right, get to the point, Makulu. What have we done wrong? Because we knew it was coming. And that storytelling format, which then when I was at school, and it was also used by the teachers who taught us English in Isikos. They would explain what does idiom means, what does a phrase mean in Isikos. 
And then we would then learn English in easy course. And then we would then write the essay in English, understanding what we're talking about. So English was used as a tool more than as a language for us to learn. We used English to understand um, the intricacy and the, 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 the potency of the word. But Isikosa explained it. Things like, for instance, there's no word like like in Isikosa. Oh. You either love somebody or you don't. Oh, I don't yes. Know. yes. Yeah. You either love somebody or you don't. This yeah. word about like, I can't find a word for it in, the, in, in our languages, you know. And this permeated throughout your life as a storyteller. And when I got to know a little bit about Shakespeare, I found him to be a very great storyteller. Like all my grandmothers and my great-great-grandmothers, there was nothing different, nothing new about him. The only thing that I needed a little bit to decode was the language he was using. You must also remember that when the settlers introduced religion or Christianity to us as African people in Southern Africa, they had the Bible on the left hand and the gun and the spade on the right hand. So yeah. they would then explain in the Bible in English, and I found very sort of uncanny the fact that the words used or the language or the structure of sentences in the Bible were identical with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So the question was, is Shakespeare King James <laughs> or is King James Shakespeare? But they used the same, and this was how Christianity was introduced to us. You still find up to today certain preachers, pastors and all, they will go to the Bible and quote exactly the King James Version, which was Shakespeare. So Shakespeare wasn't foreign to us as young kids at school because we've gone through reading the Bible anyway every bloody evening. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, not hallowed, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. It was Shakespeare. Yeah. I got yeah. very familiar with the text because I've been reading the text at home because even uh, we're very sort of real Christian family. Although my father was a, 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 an autocratic traditionalist, he truly believed in the ancestors and the world beyond the ancestors, up to Dukamata Kavilingangi, who is the creator of nature, and all our relationship with the creator was acknowledging the creator and, and understanding the peaceful coexistence between us and all that is nature around us, including the mosquitoes and the fly, the crocodiles, the hyenas. We had a special gift relationship between them, and that's what my father believed. And therefore, when he died, he just said to me, these are the things you must do so that I could cross over into the world of ancestors. And I'll be the person who looks over you, who guides you, who, who, who always advises you and the family. And this is that little part which we brought in in the Black Panther, whereby my son, when he dies, he comes over to the ancestral land and still communicate with King T'Chaka. Yeah. Yeah. See, those are the things we discussed, the, ex the, the existence of another world beyond death. Yes. As I say in Kunene in the King, in the African culture, there are those that are not born yet. Yes. There are those that are living and there are those that have passed on. There is a reality and a link that I'm constantly conscious of those three stages of my existence. An unbroken chain of our family that you can always reach into for wisdom. And um, 
in my family, um, we are taught from the time we're young that you do not walk into any room alone. You walk into it with all your ancestors. God speaks through your ancestors, the fact that your bloodline exists. So when I walk on stage with the stage fright and everything, I feel huge and less scared because I'm walking in with all of them. I'm like, it's fine. You like one of us. And this is what I said to Ryan Ugler, the director of the Black Panther. And uh -huh. I said to him, Ryan, imagine you walking with 3,000 ancestors behind you. When you walk into a room, you're already in the majority. Yeah. I could be the only black person in the room. I'm in the majority. So... With that in mind, have you had a moment in your life where you went, yeah, this is why I'm doing this. This is what I was born to do. And this is why I was born to do it. Every time I wake up, I know exactly. As the sun rises, as I take the breath and I step out, I know I'm in the right place. Because I made a decision in 1965 that this is what and who I am. And this is my role and this is my responsibility. We brought up in the 60s with a clear understanding that you're not just sliding in and out in life. There is a purpose for your existence and you must fulfill that purpose for the benefit and the betterment of the people. You as a child, as a young man, as a young, wonderful woman, you knew that responsibility. And trying to do, finding out while learning to study this and study that and trying to do that, all those things have to come together in one center so that the center holds. And that center was being an artist, being a writer, being an actor. I remember that standing on that stage in 1965, doing Antigone and playing Haman. And there was in our St. Stephen's Church Hall in New Brighton, there was an audience there about, we were nine in the cast. There were about 12 people as audience. And I stood there and I stepped front as, um, as, as Haman, the son of Creon, lamenting the death of my betrothed Antigone. And in me, there was a quietness. And an incredible feeling of, I am here. There was even an out-of-body experience which made me see me. And I thought, I like this guy. This is who I want to be, him, me. And from that day, that novel feeling of 1965, that, that, that honest truth and experience is the only thing that drives me. I've got to get that. I have a Polaroid of that moment. I took a picture of it in my soul and in my subconscious. And everything, when things don't go right, I refer back to that moment, which was not doubting the decisions I made or the decision I decided to be an actor, a writer or whatever. That was the moment. And I hold on to that precious self-acknowledging. This is it. This is who I am. And that is my responsibility. Each moment you sit in that first day, we sit around the table 
being introduced. This is the production manager. This is the stage manager. This is marketing. This is the artistic director. This is the finance people who we not to double because they pay. And we sit around and then they all leave. And there's that one silence when the director sits there and the actors sit on the table and we do the first reading of the script. Oh, my Lord, Mohali, a special moment. I have not been hearing my voice. I've been reading with my mind and trying to find out what the story is about. But when the other actors, the director, the designers, everybody's sitting around and we start reading, it's almost a new journey. Because these words suddenly take the form of the faces and the sounds and the accents of the people around you. And then you find out that the words, as they connect to each other, making a sentence. And you ask yourself as to why were these words chosen? Why did the writer choose this line this way? And it is that that makes the connection in your heart and that you feel, I am blessed that I do this for the purpose I'm doing it. Of course, I'm going to be paid a lot of money. I know that. And I demand <laughs> because I know that. I de- but the important thing is this opportunity just to free myself. Clear. You know, when people talk about Stanislavski's an actor prepares, they think it's a moment when you arrive just before the performance, you arrive an hour earlier, you go into a little cubicle if you are still younger, and you go to your own dressing room if you are like me, and then you keep quiet there, you don't want people to talk to you because I am preparing, I'm looking at my journey, I'm look- that's late. day you made the decision to be an actor, the preparation started. The train is moving. The journey is going interrupted or interspersed by these projects you do, each one of them. But the preparation is a continuous journey for you. So, yes, every time I step on stage, I always remember that these people I'm performing to this evening, it's their first night. I know we opened three weeks ago, but that's got nothing to do with this evening. The people in this audience, it's their first night. They have never heard or seen this play before. It is me, it is my duty to be as virgin, as pure, as new as possible for these people so that they understand what I'm trying to say to them, what I'm trying to ask from them, what I'm inviting them to take this journey with me. It's just more than remembering lines and not bumping into the furniture and check your pay packet on your way at the stage door. It's every evening is new. The opportunity given to you as a performer, as an actor, as a musician, that this evening, this is it. Make or break. I tell you what frightens me more is the first preview. It frightens the hell out of me. Because it is then the lies we were telling each other during the four weeks rehearsals that we are brilliant, we have a very good script, we're sitting around saying, this is wonderful writing. Can you understand that the director is the best director? It's all the nonsense of the preparation to the point of the first preview. When they don't walk out, when they don't boo, when they let me finish the play of 90 minutes, the first preview, the curtain falls, I pick up the phone and I says, mom, I'm an actor. We did it. 
Oh. The rest is irrelevant for me. That was going to be one of my questions about your preparation. Because I, when I got asked, like, what do you believe, in drama school, when they asked us, what do you believe you can play? And I said, I can play anything. Because I'm always preparing to be anything. I'm always living every new role, every new play, every new script. It's a, it's a different way to play. It's stretching a new muscle or re-exercising the ones I already had and rediscovering new muscles. With your own writing, do you find, as you said, like you've given it to the director and now it's something that's coming to life. But even after you've given it to the director and it's something that's coming to life, it's still your baby and it's still an evolving piece of work, especially if you're part of the bringing it to life. Do you find that the chemistry of the creatives in the room unlocks something in you as a writer that helps you redraft? Are you that kind of writer? The first week of rehearsals, the writer is present. You can ask any question as an actor, ask any questions lighting design, ask any question as set and costume design, set builders, you can ask any question as other actors around the table. During that first week, the writer is present. And when we discuss, you discuss your character, I discuss mine, she discuss hers. And as we discuss, I am present to say, slightly think about, because there is, each character has a history and a cultural background. Mm. I will explain to you what motivates, what drove this particular character, who this character represents as a slice of life in the country and the people and my life and the history of my life as a writer comes from. When I've given you all that information, because it's very difficult when we write, we write almost the end of the process. I allow that first week still to interrogate, still to explore, still to ask. Then we should get to a point now where the director begins structuring the journey and has the liberty of actors not asking questions about why does he say this? We had the first week with that. I also ask, sometimes I'm amazed and pleasantly so by what actors ask about, did you mean this by this line? <laughs> and I'm thinking, no. <laughs> I just thought he should say, I don't care. I don't know what he meant by I don't care. He just said, I don't care. So that's it. But second week, I tell the director and the actors, the writer is absent. I remember on our second week, we were rehearsing, and then Tony shared a question. And Janice, the director, said, I know the writer. At the end of the rehearsals, I will call him and ask him a question. Because you have to hand over to people you trust. They shape the, 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 the dialect, the, the, the enunciation, the, they, they get different inflections, you know. I write as an African, and suddenly there's a white actor. I write as a man, and suddenly there's a woman speaking. And I have to allow that this, because I'm trying as much to be, as I said, schizophrenic in the sense that I speak like my mother, like my sister, like my aunt. I also speak like my uncle, like my grandfather, like my father, like my neighbor, all the men world around this socialized African men. So when the work is on the table and it's my final draft, I learn lines like everybody. And I don't want the script changing all the time as an actor if I've not written the play and I don't have the opportunity to have Shakespeare in the room. That would be the exploring time, unpacking the text. 
we used to, as, as Africans, you know, have an incredible time about this fantastic, most famous line in Shakespeare, to be or not to not be. Not to be. Is the question. What the hell did it mean by that? Why is it just to be? What does it mean to be? To use these two words, to be, does it acknowledge existence? Does it acknowledge human, human being or being? And not to be, does it then contradict not being? Is it talking about you being not alive or dead or not being responsible to your existence? You know, we, we took it to one part. And then, then why does it say that's the question? But when we performed uh, Hamlet at the Swan Theatre just be, uh, some couple of years ago and I played Claudius, I remember yeah. we were discussing and John Barnes, the fundi, you know, and all people were having a discussion. And I said, I have a question. He said, what? Surely Claudius, who is the brother of Hamlet Senior, must have had his own family. He must have a wife and children. So why was he able to step into his brother's warm bedroom immediately after the brother's death? Where was his family? And John Barnes said, sometimes Shakespeare does not allow these questions. He just says, Claudius hasn't got a child, hasn't got a wife, he's going to fall in love with Gertrude, and that's what we accept. We get to the point that says, this is what the writer said, work on it. Illuminate, amplify it, give it breath, give it meaning, give it all that you have, step into that being and be that being, and just enjoy. I was talking to my cousin, who works as a scientist. And he was talking about how he has a list of people that he will work with and a list of people that he will not work with. He can work with anyone, but it's in, in his field is to do with ethics and things like that. Do you have, if it's not too much of an imposition, do you have such a list yourself? And what makes you draw up the list of, this is the kind of person I can work with and this is the kind of person I cannot work with, if you have such lists? No, I'm a working artist. I have always exercised my craft, execute, turn things around and make them mean something because you work with other directors who says, if you have a message, use the Western Union. I don't see the reason that we should uh, uh, impose uh, socio-political sort of positions within the text. Now, when I agreed to do this, I had read that script. If that script speaks to me to make a decision that I'd love to be part of the telling of the story. It is irrelevant to me at that stage when I make the decision to say yes to the script that who's directing. But now comes the time we are asking that you had a very bad experience or not nice experience, which me, I suppose, <laughs> I'm very fortunate that I've always been drawn to people who know who I am and they appreciate my work and what I stand for and what is my, my, my whole purpose of being an artist. So I get kind of typecast into we're looking for this native who is proud and militant and believes in humanity, blah, 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 blah. So you come into the workspace with people that are 
of like mind to you, not totally juxtaposed on opposite direction. So we then kind of find the common ground and we're human beings. It's a give and take. He has a role as a director and the other actor and the other actor as well. But for me, mostly is kind of the divas that you feel like, oh no, I'm not working with this one. There's nothing that drives me crazy than a lazy actor who oh, uses yeah. the opportunity to argue with the director about a note. A note. That's why sometimes I say, if you had done your homework, if you are prepared enough and ready, we could have now moved on. You're playing this interrogating the situation and the questioning of what the director or the actors are saying. And that for me sort of pisses me off because we are holding up the process and the progress of this fantastic opportunity of a four weeks rehearsal to go in front of an audience and put our reputations and our integrity at stake. Because at the end of the day, this director would be not on stage I remember 1974, I'm standing uh, in on Broadway, we're opening that night, the island, and mm. James L. Jones was doing Steinberg's Oh Mice and Men. So he came over to my dressing room and to say, good luck for tonight. And he said, how do you feel? I said, I'm a little nervous. I don't know what Broadway is, but it seems like everybody around me is kind of nervous about this opening. And James L. Jones said to me, all you need, John, is five different plays that the critics unanimously acknowledge your ability to act. Anything goes wrong tonight, it's not your fault. The rest now rests on the director and the writer said, but I'm also the writer. (laughs) (laughs) That was that kind of moment in you to a coalition of the willing, a coalition of like-minded. So when choosing the work, I will not find myself in a situation of working with someone I don't like. I will avoid that pre-reading the script. For you, it's the work. It's the work. Even when you were not working, it's still the work. Even during COVID-19, it's still the work. Even when you do interviews, when you do lectures, it's still the work. Last week, I was doing the final memorial lecture of O.R. Tambo and Adelaide. I saw that. And and all I was thinking about is this image of this man, this terrorist from South Africa, who escapes and leaves the country, arrives in Tanzania, goes to Ethiopia, and finally lands up in England with a document called the Freedom Charter, and had the the challenge of turning around the minds of great governments of the West in seeing the African National Congress, not just as a terrorist organizations like the PLO, the Red Brigade, like the IRA, but see it as a liberation movement that seeks to be a government in waiting. And all he had was this document called the Freedom Charter and used the artist to amplify this story to a broader audience, and he succeeded in doing that. And that's what I was thinking about. It's like an artist standing there says, what do you want to say? I can say it better as an artist. I remember him saying after seeing Cesar Banzi is dead, he said, what you did tonight at the Royal Court Theatre is what we couldn't do successfully for 30 years being in England. 
to explain to a British audience the inhumanity of the apartheid system. What a black man goes through a day being dehumanized, being destroyed. Now you did that. We've been explaining it in speeches. They saw it. That's our role. So Malume, if you could stage a play in this time that speaks to our time, what play would that be? I'd have to write it. Oh, so are you writing a play at the moment? I'm not saying. Oh! We have a, a library of the work that speaks all the time to our time. Mm-hmm. Amazing thing is that when I did Othello in 1987 and I was detained for kissing Desdemona, the first question was that did you adapt this play in such a way that it speaks to the present South Africa's racial laws? And I said, no, we've done it exactly as Shakespeare wrote it in the 17th century. They could not believe that the play itself was exactly as it was written because they thought it was written for the time of South Africa in 1987. And then the policeman looked at the script. Here, it says, he takes his hand. You kiss her on her lips, it doesn't say that. Here, it says they embrace. You kiss her on her lips and you held her body close to yours. It doesn't say that. And I said, you know what, sir? When Lawrence Olivier and Maggie Smith did this play, long time ago, they could not exploit the sensual relationship of newlyweds, of an elderly man falling in love with this young little girl, like a ripe prune, and that they were like lovebirds smooching and kissing and doing everything. They couldn't do that because Lawrence Olivier would leave the black makeup smudges on Maggie Smith's white skin and costume. I don't have that problem. So one has to look at the body of work. Even Macbeth, even King Lear, even Measure for Measure, you could find it in any of Shakespeare's plays, any of the plays written by other people. They have this timeless thing that speaks to our people now. And that is why history is important, because it always reminds us of the present, reference to the past, looking to the future. So any play that I choose to do now, we'll have to sit down and say, what does it speak to me now? What does it speak to me now? COVID-19, world with Donald Trump not conceding that he's lost the elections, Boris Johnson not knowing whether he should ban Christmas or not, and Europe not knowing whether we should make a deal with Brexit or exit or Brexit, uh, Germany getting more imposing, even closing restaurants, Norway and all the countries, Russia denying this. What kind of work will I find in the library of the arts or writers that would speak to that? Any. Cinderella would do it any time. Anytime, any of the African folk tales that my grandmother and my grandfather used to tell me would speak to me now and ask me questions that I have to use the present as reference. It's why Shakespeare is still relevant. You read The Merchant of Venice in high school in Zimbabwe and understand instantly that 
Shylock was not a monster. He was a product of his time. Dr. Kani, who, real or fictional, would you like to spend an interval drinks with? Albert Finney, who rehearsing sees Webanzi is dead, looked at it and said, how did you get to this point of using theater, which is standard, which is structured and conventional, into telling the story of your own lives? And you were present in the present in telling those lives. He just blew my mind. And we have become good friends over the years. And I felt a great loss when he passed away because he had that inquisitive asking and exploring and wanting to know a little more. What best time? to have a couple of drinks just before we run into the theater to join this event that and continues to evolve and inform us about what life is really. Life is just about us. And we breathe, we go out. And during this COVID-19, I've been fascinated by that last breath. The lungs pump, the heart's beating, and this particular person breathes out for the last time. And I'm asking, why couldn't you have taken another breath in? Maybe you would still be here so we could have a conversation. It's very important to continue the conversation, to use each moment as almost a most important moment. Do not talk to somebody looking behind their backs as if you might see someone important. Always the person in front of you is the beginning and the end of this contact you've made with another human being. And plays do that, writers do that. Movies try, television tries, but that space that we have after interval, we step in, take our seats and fix and looks around, look at the person next to you to finish that unrattling of a chocolate clear. And there's somebody trying to find the cell phone that's going oh my God, stop. And there's that moment when the lights come down, we all disappear into our little corners of little lives and the lights come up and the journey of these characters take us to the never, never land, to a world of imagination. And when the curtain comes down, we walk out occupied by the thought, what the hell did I just witness today? Thank you so much. So, so much for blessing me and us with this time that we spent with you. May God bless you. May God ancestors bless you. We'll see you for more Interval Drinks next week when Greg Haste will be sharing a gin and tonic with fellow actor Paul Jahidi. Remember, you can catch your favorite episodes again on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes.